probably going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. As you're turning there, the reminder as we're in this study, especially to this point into our journey, granted we're only the second week of this journey through Nehemiah, I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah chapter 40 where it says that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. The truths that we read in Isaiah are the truths that we demonstrated this morning in Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week we learned that there was a need, there was a concern on the part of Nehemiah over the condition of the walls into the city of his home. And the condition was so bad, Scripture says that he cries out to God. And in his crying out to God, he acknowledges his sin along with their sin. But he also acknowledges that God is in control of all things. What we're going to learn this morning is that there's a four-month gap between the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2. Because for those four months, Nehemiah has been in prayer and looking for the opportunity to share his needs and his concerns with what is taking place. And unbeknownst to Nehemiah, he is fixing to be part of a select group known as the Champions of Faith. His life's going to change forever because we're going to read about him not only in a book dedicated to him, but we're going to read about him over in the Champions of Faith, the Hall of Faith, over in the book of Hebrews. His name is going to be associated for centuries to come with those names such as Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Esther, Deborah, and David. And what we're going to understand and learn as we work through this study is that one person can make a difference. One person can change the world if they know who God is. But number two, if they will really turn and trust in Him. Because here's the first thing I want you to see this morning as we begin this journey. Because faith, it makes a difference. We can make a difference in our world for the glory of God because faith makes a difference. Because we have placed, some of us have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we have a faith that stands on a firm foundation. You and I can make a difference in this world to the glory of God. I love this statement by Martin Luther. He said these words, faith is a living Daring confidence in God's grace, it is so sure and certain that a man can stake his life on it a thousand times. That's the assurance you and I have in faith. That's the assurance you and I have in the confidence of who God is. And what we're going to learn this morning that after bathing this situation in prayer, God is going to give Nehemiah the opportunity to take action on behalf of his people. God's going to give him an opportunity to do something about what is taking place. And Nehemiah is going to stand before an earthly king and trust in the eternal king. 
to answer his need and his prayer. This morning we're going to see a couple of different things. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the emotions that Nehemiah feels. He feels some certain emotions because of what has been taking place. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I have never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you are not sick. This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. What we're going to see in these emotions this morning is that Nehemiah's sadness concerning the condition of Jerusalem. That's why he's sad. He knows the walls are being destroyed. He knows the people are in despair and in great distress. Fifty some odd years ago, there was a song recorded by the group, The Heritage Singers. The song was called The Happy Side of Life. And this was one of the phrases from the song. I have found the happy side of life. I have found the happy side of life. With Jesus as my Savior, I have found a way, rolling along, singing a song, every single passing day. The implication in this song is saying to the world that the Christian life is easy. The Christian life is always happy and joyful. The reality is, is that sadness is a part of life. We all deal with sadness. We all deal with heartache. We all deal with stress. And we are grieved and we experience these emotions. Notice that the moment that this instance takes place in chapter 2, it's four months later. I told you in chapter 1 that when you heard the news, it was about November, December. During the month of Kislev. Now we are months later, more likely mid-March, mid-April. And Nehemiah is standing before the king after fasting and after praying. And as I'm looking at Nehemiah this morning, this, this prevailing thought comes through my mind. And it's something we all wrestle with, we all deal with, and it's simply this. Sadness and grief are normal emotions for people who deeply care about others because pain, difficulties, and loss are a part of this fallen world. Notice what I said in that statement. The things that we deal with, the heartache, the sadness, the grieving, the reason that you and I experience these emotions is because we live in a fallen world. Before the fall, Adam and Eve never experienced these things. Before they bit into that piece of fruit and sin entered into the world, they didn't have to worry about grieving. They didn't have to worry about loss. They didn't have to worry about sadness. They didn't have to worry about pain. But because of their sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, we live in a fallen world where we're going to experience these things. And they are part of the human emotion. These are normal things to experience and deal with. Nehemiah is showing me and he's showing you that emotion is real. It is a normal thing. He's revealing this at this moment. 
And the thing is, he cannot conceal this grief. He can't hold it back. He can't stand next to the king with a sheepish grin, sheepish grin on his face like everything is perfect and everything's normal. Even the king notices there's a problem. Think about that for a moment. Here is this king over a vast domain who really doesn't have to pay attention to his cup bearer. Just make sure he does his job right. Yet he sees something different about his cup bearer. He sees sadness on his face. And notice the words here. Look back at verse 2. He says, why are you sad? You're not sick. And notice the phrasing. He says, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. Here's the reminder. This king could take out his cupbearer just for having a frown on his face. Because his countenance did not look like that of the king himself. He could have wiped him off the face of this earth. He could have destroyed him because of this. Now there's another prevailing thought here. This time of year in the Persian Empire was a time of celebration. It was almost like their New Year's. And so the king is celebrating. That's why you read in Scripture that wine was before him in verse 1. There's a celebration taking place according to Persian history. And everybody's happy. Everybody is joyful. Everybody is celebrating. And here is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is experiencing what I've experienced and what some of you have experienced. And it's this. At times of celebration, sometimes accentuate the sting of personal sorrow. It's after a celebration if we think about our loved ones. I've shared this before. My youngest brother never got to meet his niece. Because he passed away a month before she was born. And it's always a prevailing thought in my mind 18 years later. That he doesn't get to see the things that I get to experience. Because he's not with me. I know where he is. He's in a better place than he can there right now. But at certain times of the year, those thoughts go back home. And it's hard, especially when you see others celebrating. And here's what Nehemiah is experiencing. There's a celebration taking place, and his heart is heavy because he knows that if he was back home with his people, he'd be getting ready to celebrate Passover. And we know the significance of Passover for a devout Jew. That's when God saved the children from Egypt. He got them out of slavery and captivity. So here's this time of celebration, yet for Nehemiah, there's little to celebrate. Because he knows, he knows what's happening back home. He knows what he's experiencing now. And all these emotions are flooding in his mind. And he's trying to stand there to be that person of responsibility for the team. And he's struggling. Because notice, notice something here this morning. We go from this idea of sadness to this, this reality of Nehemiah's fear before the king. Did you see what it said at the end of verse 2? The end of verse 2, he makes this statement. So I became dreadfully afraid. He became seriously concerned for what the king might do. Because if you study your history books, King Artaxerxes was known for shedding blood. The story goes that a man had, had killed his father. And this man 
had convinced Artaxerxes to take his brothers out. And then later, Artaxerxes killed the man who killed his father. This king had no problem shedding blood. He had no problem of taking out someone who was a threat to his kingdom. And as he looks at Nehemiah and says, dude, what's your problem? Why are you sad? You're not sick. At that moment, King Artaxerxes could have taken Nehemiah out. Because just by the look of his face, because of his countenance. But then Nehemiah sees this as an opportunity. The king has recognized my situation. He's recognized I'm experiencing something. He's asking a legitimate question. Man, what's going on? Why are you sad? Notice what the king doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, if you don't straighten up, you're going to know why you're sad. No, he simply says, man, what's going on? Notice this. This king doesn't have to acknowledge his cupbearer other than, other than say, hey, hand me the cup. Here, take a bite of this food before I eat it to make sure it's not poison. Yet he sees something. And here, at this moment, Nehemiah stands and he says he is concerned because here is an opportunity with no guarantee of a positive response by the king. Nehemiah sees that this may be an open window. And he knows what this king had experienced. You see, Artaxerxes, when he came in, came in power, he had to deal with the Greeks. He had to deal with the Egyptians who were trying to overtake his authority. That's the kind of king he was. He did not want anybody to get in his way. If you've ever seen the movie 300, it's a loose interpretation to just how drastic King Artaxerxes was in taking out people who stood in his way. So the king sees his man and sees his situation. He has seen how he's defeated enemies. Nehemiah has seen him destroy people. And now this is the same kingdom. Let me give you another history lesson. This is the same king who stopped the walls from being rebuilt in the first place. They're in the first exile back to Jerusalem. Take your Bibles for just a moment. Turn back over to Ezra. Ezra, chapter 4. And I want to show you what led to this king who Nehemiah served under. What led this king to put a stop to the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem? Chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And let me give you some context here this morning. If you were to start at the beginning of chapter 4, the children of Israel want to rebuild the temple, but there's some resistance. There are some people in the neighborhood who don't want Israel rebuilding anything. They don't want Israel to have any kind of, what they think in their mind is power. So a group of individuals write to the king, and now look at me starting in verse 11. To what they say to the king. And listen to some of the words they used this morning. Ezra chapter 4 verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that was sent to him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants. The men of the region beyond the river. And so forth. Let it be known to the king. That the Jews have come up from you. Have come to us at Jerusalem. And are building the rebellious, rebellious and evil city and finishing its walls and repairing the foundation. Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's tre 
treasury will be diminished. Now because we received support from the palace, it is not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore we have sent and informed the king that search may be made of the book of records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records, and you know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedation within the city many times, for which cause this city was destroyed. We informed the king that as this city is rebuilt and falls completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. In other words, a group of individuals were to tattletale to the king. And they said to the king, listen, if they build this city, they're not going to listen to you. If they rebuild this city, they're not going to pay taxes. They're going to do their own thing, and eventually they're going to overtake you. So the king gets this letter. Now look at me starting in verse 17, because the king's going to respond. The same king that Nehemiah is serving under. Verse 17, chapter 4, it says this. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander of Shemshay, the scribe, to the rest of their companies, companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. Verse 18. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and the search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times had revolted against kings and rebellion, and sedation had been fostered in it. And they have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all region beyond the river. The tax and tribute and customs were paid to them. Now give the command and make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to hurt the king? King Artaxerxes believed that the city of Jerusalem was rebellious and he put a stop to it being rebuilt. He felt that this city was going to give him trouble because he knew the history of insurrection. He knew all the possibilities of what could take place. And Nehemiah fears that Artaxerxes' opinion of Jerusalem has not changed. Yet he wants an opportunity to speak to the king. So he has these emotions. Listen to this statement, which I think is very true for this moment. True courage is displayed in the midst of the greatest fears. True courage is displayed in the midst of greatest fears. We see that in life. We see that as men and women choose to serve our country and go into hostile situations, not knowing what's going to take place, not knowing what, what could or couldn't happen, but we've read stories where courage is on display when they are facing their greatest fears. And this is what's happening for Nehemiah. His greatest fears at this moment. The king has asked a question. And now he has to give a response. And what is he going to say to this man? And what is he going to say that can change his course to do what God he feels is calling him to accomplish. Because the next thing we see in this chapter, in this section of scripture, is the courage Nehemiah displays. Back in Nehemiah chapter 2, I want you to see the courage this morning in verse 3. 
the courage that enables him to speak the truth. Verse 3. And said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, tombs lie waste and its gates are burned with fire? Even though Nehemiah is experiencing distress, he has fear gripping him, his response is both respectful and genuine. Notice what he says. His expression to the king in verse 3 when he says that word, may the king live forever, he's basically saying, your majesty. He's showing the respect that is due this man. And he wants this king to be blessed. But he knows in the back of his mind that he's faithful in his service to this king. He has been faithful the whole time he's working with this king. And now he has had this opportunity. And notice he expresses the desire. He talks about the welfare. And notice the wording here. We're going to unpack this one more in just a second. But for me, we talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school. As a child of God, you have an obligation to share your testimony with those around you. You have an obligation to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's through speech. Sometimes it's through your actions, the way you handle situations, the way you do things. And I put this thought in your outline this morning. How unbelievers conduct themselves before unbelievers will go a long way in gaining the ear of unbelievers when speaking about things concerning the kingdom of God. When un when un how unbelievers, it should be how believers title for in our life this morning. How believers conduct themselves. And I realize I've been unbelievers because it's my mistake. That's the only mistake I've made today. I'm good to go. Oh, come on. How believers, think about that. How believers, how I conduct myself in front of unbelievers goes a long way with giving me the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. If I walk around every day like a pain in the blessed assurance, I'm going to have a horrible job sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. But if the way I conduct myself in the good and the bad draws an unbeliever to me, and I've had this happen before, and I've shared the story when I worked on the golf, when I worked on the golf course over in Savannah, I would have guys come to me on a regular basis and say, why aren't you mad at the boss? He's making us stay the next hour after. My response was, why are you mad? He's the boss and I'm not. Why should that affect my countenance? Am I mad internally? I'm going to get a little bit upset. Yeah. But why should I walk around going, yes, sorry, no good? That doesn't accomplish anything for the kingdom. But if my countenance shows that I'm going with the flow, it's going to draw that unbeliever to ask me, hey, why are you okay with this? It's those opportunities to have those gospel conversations. And unbeknownst to King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah is fixing to have a God conversation with him. Because the door's been opened. The door's been opened. What's wrong? Why are, you, why are you sad? And he says, King, here's why I'm sad. He just listened to there in the verse. And we'll go back to that in just a second. 
But I think as I read through this, I'm reminded of the words of Jeremiah 29, 7 to say this. It says, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. Jeremiah's words remind me that no matter what situation I'm in, my desire should have to be have peace. Peace in my circumstance. Peace in my situation. Peace in what I'm dealing with. And that's what Nehemiah has right now. He has a sense of peace. But then notice what he says there again in verse 3. He says, listen, why should my face not be sad? The city, notice the wording here. Please do not pass this. Notice how he says this. The city where my father's tombs, they lay waste and the walls are burned to the ground. Did you catch what he did not say? He never mentions the word Jerusalem. But remember, the king doesn't like that city. He just says the place where the tomb of my father is buried are desolate. Because we go from, watch this, watch this unpack. We see Nehemiah's courage enabling him to speak the truth, but now we see Nehemiah's courage comes from dependence on God. Look at me at verse 4. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Because Nehemiah's concern is not only genuine, but his concern for a city, even though he doesn't mention the city by name. He says that, again, verse 3, where my father's tomb is, it's laid to waste, the city is burnt. Here's why he words it this way. Because in ancient times, people of nobility and royalty had the highest respect for the ancestral tombs. There was respect when they laid kings to rest. There was respect when they laid people of importance to rest. And even though Nehemiah is sad, he's sad for a reason. And the king understands that. And the king sees that in his face. And remember, Nehemiah has been bathing this time, this moment, in prayer. For four months he has prayed. For four months he has fasted. For four months he has waited for just the right time. So he explains why he is sad. And then notice what the king said in verse 4. He talked about an open door. What do you request? What do you need? How can I help you? Did you notice Nehemiah's response there in verse 4? So I prayed to God. That now he's God to direct his words. Scripture says that he prayed to God. This is part of that ongoing prayer we read in verse 1. He's praying because he acknowledges the source of his strength. He knows he's going to give him the words to say and the encouragement to do it. He knows he is serving the one Lord and he needs wisdom. He needs strength. He needs help. He needs deliverance. He needs healing. He needs encouragement. He needs mercy. He needs grace. He needs protection. And I think at this moment when he is praying, when he prays this word, he says, I pray to the God of heaven. I think he understood the truth we read in Psalm 46, verse 1, that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. I think at that moment, Nehemiah is praying that truth. God is my help. God is my source. He's my refuge. But then he also prays the promise of God. 
Psalm 72, verse 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, him who has no comfort. At this very moment, Nehemiah is trusting in the only person who can help him at this time. The only person who's going to give him any peace, any security, any hope of what needs to be done. And notice the short prayer. Notice the short prayer. He simply says, I pray to the Father of heaven. I pray to the God of heaven. I'm reminded of a quote that I shared with you all last week by Andrew Murray. that said, give the Father time. When we pray about situations in our life, we pray about conditions and certainties and circumstances that are going on in our life. He says in that quote last week, give the Father time. The problem is we want to rush into things head first instead of saying, God, help me. God, lead me. God, direct me. It's that reminder, give the Father time. That's what Nehemiah has done. For four months, he's turned the situation as lead to the Father. And now Father, the Father says, here's your moment. Here's your chance. Here's what you need to do to accomplish the task I have for you. It's a dependence on God that only comes from God. And here's another thought, and I found this quote earlier this week by Marvin Bremen, who makes this observation. Just think about it. This prayer in verse 4, it's a short prayer. It's just like, okay, God, help. Amen. And here's the reminder. Put on the screen behind you. Quick prayers are possible invalid if one has prayed sufficiently before him. Did you catch that? If I've been praying and praying and praying and praying over a situation and I come to the moment where God needs to show up, I can pray that quick prayer because I've already been bathing in prayer. Nehemiah has been bathing the situation in prayer and now God is going to answer his prayer because prayer helps one's perspective on how things work. But here's the other side of this. When a person who is afraid looks to God for help, the mere looking to God changes his perspective. If a person is going to say, God, help me, notice the perspective changes. Because they're acknowledging who's in control. They're acknowledging the one that can change the circumstances. Take your Bibles for a second. Turn over to Psalm 56. I want to show you where David prayed that kind of prayer. When he prayed over his circumstance. Psalm 56 verses 3 through 4. It's a prayer that I would encourage you to mark in your Bible. If you're a person who likes to mark your Bible, this is one you want to come back to a lot. Psalm 56 starting in verse 3. These are the words of David. He's surrounded by his enemies. And David says these words. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can the flesh do to me? Think about those words for a moment. When you read this verse, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in your word. 
It's a prayer. So when Nehemiah prays that prayer back in verse 4, it's not just a prayer of dependence, but it's a prayer that emboldens him to speak. Why? Because as great as King Artaxerxes is, and others think he is, he does not compare to the God of the universe. King Artaxerxes, yeah, he's a big man on campus. He is the most important man in his region. But compared to God, he's a nobody. And that's a reminder for us. We tend to put people on a pedestal because they have authority, they have respect. Yes, for some people, they have earned that. For some people, they have been put in those positions. But sometimes power goes to the head. Have you ever seen that in history? Power goes to the head. Yes, King Artaxerxes is a great man. But Nehemiah understands that as great as this earthly king is, there is a heavenly king that has way more power than him. And can do a whole lot more. Because every kingdom of humanity fails in comparison to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's what Nehemiah acknowledges. Because Nehemiah's courage enables him to communicate his desire. We see this pattern, the courage to speak the courage to have boldness, now it's going to give him the courage to answer that question. Notice what Nehemiah says. And I said to the king, verse 5, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask you to send me to Judea, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Again, notice how he makes a request. He never mentions Jerusalem. Let me go to the region. Let me go to where my father's tomb is. Because again, he knows who put an end to the building. He knew who put the end to rebuilding the walls. So he is very careful with his wording. But let's be honest. The king knows where he wants to go. I truly believe that. Because we see this courage to communicate. But then notice... That Nehemiah's courage results in pleasing the king. He said, let me go back to where my father's tomb is. Now look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. This next thought, Nehemiah's courage results in pleasing the king. Verse 6. Then the king said to me, and the queen sitting behind side him, right? How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Nehemiah had prepared to give an answer. Notice what the king asked. How are you going to be gone? And when you come back? And there's a reason behind this. I think King Artaxerxes wanted some certainty that Nehemiah would come back to him. Scripture says they had set a time before. We're going to learn in this study that Nehemiah was gone for 12 years. He was gone for 12 years and eventually went back to serve Artaxerxes. But notice this. Notice the king didn't say, have you lost your mind? I need you right here. He didn't say to him, listen, you can't go. I don't trust anybody else. He simply says to him, would you come back? But did you also catch there in verse 6 who else was sitting there? Because you have the king, but you also have the queen. Scripture doesn't tell us why the queen is there. 
Again, we've already alluded to there's a celebration taking place. That could be why the queen is there. But again, when you read scripture, there's always a reason why things are put there. I think that Nehemiah and his servants have found favor with both the king and the queen. They trusted so much that they didn't want to see him just leave. They wanted him to come back. And according to scripture, he has set a time. Because Nehemiah was trustworthy. The king trusted him with his life. And also remember reading back in Ezra. There was insurrection. The king had already put people in different regions to help him maintain order. There's this thought that because Nehemiah did such a good job of the cupbearer, the reason the king wanted him back is so he could put him in a position of authority. We see these things taking place. And regardless of how shrewd King Artaxerxes thinks he is, how smart he thinks he is getting Nehemiah to come back, listen to the words of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord can use the shrewdest king in the world for his purposes. Because people in authority can be used by God even if they don't know and trust who God is. As we're looking at this, I want you to see this courage also. Nehemiah's courage enables him to communicate his needs. He's already said what he needed, but he takes it a step further. It's kind of like, remember when you would ask your parents to do something and then you added something extra to that permission? Hey, can I go play with so-and-so? And I walk away, can I go ahead and spend the night too? It's kind of like that add-on. He's already got permission from the king, so it's like, okay, let's see what else I can bring to the party. Because notice what happens in verses 7 and 8. Because he's already asked for permission to go, but then he asked for a permission slip. Look at verse 7. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me from the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. In a letter to Asma, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple. For the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. Not only do I get permission to go, but hey, king, can I bring some stuff from your house too? Because if you see that, he said, not only can, you, can I go, but hey, by the way, I got a list of to-do stuff. Will you help me out? Notice what he needs. He needs timber for three specific things that were in the scripture. But he also knows he's going to a dangerous region because you saw that in verse 7. Hey, do you give me a permission slip to walk through this land? That you're the king and you're in charge? So I need a permission slip. No, by the way, I need a little something else. I need timber for three specific projects that are mentioned here in Scripture. He said that he needed timber to repair the gates of the citadel which pertained to the temple. The second project was for the walls of Jerusalem themselves. Now notice, he had left the need out of the conversation, but since the tension is gone, he can now freely ask for these things because God has set up this moment for this to happen. 
Because Nehemiah's heart had been opened. Nehemiah's heart had been opened to God. The king of Xerxes' heart also been opened to Nehemiah and his needs. He says, listen, here king, here's what I need. I need to rebuild this temple. I need to rebuild the walls. But he says, oh, by the way, I need wood for my house. I need my own building project to go. Because remember, much of Jerusalem is in despair. But notice that he demonstrates his spirituality, but also is practical. He knows there's a need. Yes, God can do great things, but he has to have the tools to accomplish the mission and accomplish the task. And this leads up to this last little section, and that's the favor Nehemiah receives. People of faith recognize when God is at hand. People of faith recognize when God is working. He knew he needed to go back home, but he didn't know how he was going to get there. He knew that things needed to be rebuilt, but he had no idea how he was going to get the materials to get the job done. But just like Esther before him, Nehemiah is at this moment for a time such as this. And God needed Nehemiah for such a time as this. Because God has orchestrated everything taking place in Nehemiah's life. He's put him in a place of foreign land. He has him serving with a king who has the ability to use him or kill him. He puts a burden in his heart right in his foreign land. And he has that moment to come to the king and ask these things. But then look at verse, the latter part of verse 8 where I stopped. In verse 9. Verse 8. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governor of the region beyond the river and gave him the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. God has orchestrated everything in Nehemiah's life because God heard Nehemiah's prayer. Because he had bathed the situation in prayer, he had prayed over it. Because it was God who gave Nehemiah the opportunity and courage to give his concerns to the king. It was God who moved to the king's heart. It was God who provided for Nehemiah what he needed for not only protection, but to carry out the mission. And it's God who led Nehemiah a hundred miles from Susa back to the city and the people of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah gives credit where credit is due. Because Nehemiah says that everything that he asked from God came to pass. So did you catch the verse 9 there? Did you notice that Nehemiah didn't show up by himself? He's got all the supplies, but he shows up with the captains from a couple other people. There's a grand entrance. When Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, he's not one man on a camel. He's got a, an entourage. There's the brother before. An entourage with him. Everybody knows this. Who is this guy? What's he doing here? Because this leads me to my last thought. As great as God is in doing things for his kingdom, as great as God does in accomplishing things, if I had my way, we would stop at this verse and go home. Because man, everything's been awesome. God has answered his prayers. God has worked with Nehemiah's life to get him to this point where he is now back in Jerusalem. 
And there should be celebrating. Because here's the man with supplies to rebuild the city. But then we read verse 10. And this leads to the last point of the outline. The main point. It said to this. The enemy Nehemiah awakens. The enemy Nehemiah awakens. Verse 10. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. I saw what a yell time out right here and say, do what? Somebody is mad because Nehemiah came back. Somebody is mad because Nehemiah wants to rebuild the city. These two men see all this. If you read that in Scripture, it says they're deeply distressed that a man cares about the well-being of the children of Israel. Sambal San was probably a governor of Samaria. He had a position of authority. This other individual was also a person who served King Artaxerxes. These are two men in position of authority, but these are two men who are bent out of shape than Nehemiah is that. Again, Scripture says they're deeply distressed. When God does something great in the life of His church, when God does something great in the life of an individual, when the people of God rise up to do the work of God, it will infuriate the enemies of God. And ladies and gentlemen, sometimes those enemies come from within the four walls of the church. The enemy is not always outside the walls. There will always be people who will try to quench the Spirit of God. There will be people who don't want to see the church of God move forward and do great things. There will actually be people who will say, hey, do we really need to do that? Do we really need to serve them? Do we really need to help them? These two men, who we're going to get to learn a lot about in this study, are bent out of shape because Nehemiah is there and he wants to do great things. Nehemiah's desire is to rediscover the glory of God. He wants to see revival take place among God's people. He wants to see this holy city rebuilt. He's been patient. And now he's being active as he waits for the Lord to give him that opportunity. He's demonstrated patience for four months. He was at this point. He's been fasting. He's been praying. He's been contemplating what needs to be done next. Everything that Nehemiah does is bathed in prayer. Everything Nehemiah does is bathed in prayer. He has prayed about it. Not once, not twice. On multiple times. That's that last point in your outline this morning. He has made everything in prayer. Why? Because Nehemiah is totally dependent on God, and it's only God who can answer his prayers and accomplish his mission. Nehemiah needs the protection of God. He needs God to provide for his needs. I got one more thought for you to write out. It's not your bulletin. So don't close the books yet. I know what you've done. You bit out your last point and said, Woo, who's done? Nope. Gotcha. One more thought. I didn't put it in your outline, but I think it's worth writing down this morning. Nehemiah acts both spiritually and practically. Nehemiah never got ahead of God. 
He trusted God in all this. His dependence on God gives him the courage that enables him to press ahead despite the obstacles that are going to come up that are going to stand before him. He trusts in a God who loves him and is willing to have him be used for God's glory. And here's the last thought. If only you and I had the same trust and belief in God. If you and I trusted and believed in God as much as Nehemiah did, how much different would our world truly be? Every head down here got closed. This morning is about finding courage. It's about trusting in the one who can answer our prayers. It's trusting the one who can deliver us and put us into the right position to be used by him. It takes courage. But it takes a step of faith. For Nehemiah, he begged that step in four months of prayer and fasting. I truly believe in my heart of hearts. The only way Nehemiah accomplishes anything is because of the relationship he has with the Father. For you and for me, in order for us to accomplish great things for God, we have to know God. And this morning, the only way you can know the Father is through His Son. They acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for your sins. They acknowledge that not only did He die for your sins, but He rose from the dead three days later. And at this moment, on January the 9th, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for God to say, Go get my children. But until that day comes, we trust in Him to order our steps and to lead us and to guide us. My prayer is that you have the same faith that Nehemiah had. That you have the same trust in God that Nehemiah has. That that only happened if you know Jesus Christ. This morning, Father, as we are here at this moment, Father, at this time of invitation, the prayer is simply this, that you would speak into the hearts of individuals this morning. Father, we have seen the courage of your man. We have seen him stand before a king who didn't care about the things of God. But we saw this man with courage share his heart when you opened that door for him to do so. But Father, we've also learned this morning that the enemy we do anything we can to stop the momentum. Father, as we gather at this time, our trust is solely and completely in you. Our prayers that you move this morning, Father, that even with the group who's here this morning, there cannot be an assumption that everybody here knows who Jesus Christ is. So, Father, my prayers you move the heart of that individual. Father, I pray that you move the heart of individuals that yes, they know you. But they're not as close as they need to be because they have forgotten about the power of prayer. They have forgotten about coming to you first and giving you time to answer our prayers. Father, there may be some here this morning desiring part, desiring part of this fellowship. Father, whatever case may be, at this moment, at this particular time, Father, we pray that you will be done, that you speak to the hearts of individuals. Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. That's awesome.